That gets to really the root of a lot of the food stuff is there is a sense of disgust that goes underneath all of it. And, and you know, with, with taboos, disgust is normally at the core. And we like to think that disgust is this very instinctive feeling. And it isn't necessarily. Well, hello, hello. Haven't seen you in a while. Welcome to Amuse-Bouche, a podcast full of big ideas served in small bites. I'm your host, Kehlani Palmasano, and today I'm dropping a very special episode into the feed featuring Matt Hirschberger. You may remember Matt from episode five when we talked about guerrilla gardening, life in New Jersey, and baking bread with children through the pandemic. Matt Hirschberger is a writer, librarian, author of two books that are in the works, a stay-at-home dad, and the mind behind Better Strangers, a newsletter on Substack about books, parenting, art, nature, and life during what feels like the apocalypse. In 2018, I was producing a podcast that never really got off the ground. It was called The Side Dish, and Matt was one of my first guests. At the time, he was writing a series of stories about food taboos, their histories, how they're created, and how we can break the power that they hold over us. And that's what he came on the show to talk about. So without further ado, here's the unaired episode of Matt Hirschberger and Food Taboos. When we think about a taboo, we often think it's something that we shouldn't do. It's something that's bold and brazen and makes our grandmother gasp. So tell us, Matt, what really is a taboo and what is it in the context of food? A food taboo is a social custom. So the first thing you kind of need to get out there is like if you just don't like a food, you don't have a taboo against it. If you're not into blue cheese, then you're wrong and you need your head examined. But uh, that dislike only applies to you. And so it's a totally separate thing. A food taboo is culturally enforced. Um, so it's basically something that you'll be shamed if you eat. And it has this kind of like strange magical element that people put to it. It's if, if you eat something that's a food taboo, it's like a transgressive, uh, dangerous act. So the magical thinking around it is kind of important because if we were totally rational creatures, we would eat every source of nutrition available to us, like regardless of where it came from. But, you know, there are plenty of cultures which don't eat cows or pigs or, you know, we don't eat insects. Uh, most don't eat humans. And so, you know, they're, they're basically all of these different food taboos across the world and none of them make perfect sense uh, because we should be efficient and we should be eating everything that comes to us all the time. Yeah, it makes sense that we only have limited resources in our environment, and yet somehow humans are this creature that have decided that some foods are inferior to others. So what is the purpose of having a food taboo? So normally it starts for pretty practical reasons. Normally you'll have um, either it's it's for a health reason or it's a ecological reason or for uh, for reinforcing some sort of social hierarchy. Um, and then over time it kind of gets a a religious kind of feel to it and they'll people will kind of like transpose like moral and and basically spiritual reasons for not eating a certain thing. Um, but it's kind of runs a gamut. Like there's no reason, there's no one reason why something becomes a food taboo. It's, it's really kind of interesting how different foods kind of get to that place. 
Definitely. This makes me think back to food taboos of growing up in suburbia during the 90s versus what we eat today. I remember growing up that there used to be this aversion to sushi. And it wasn't that people didn't want to eat Japanese cuisine. It was more the idea that raw fish is bad and not safe to consume. So even though sushi is a high grade quality fish, there was this perception and that perception wasn't even that long ago. But I guess that's the point. Perceptions change over time. And a lot of the work that you've been doing with Eat Sip Trip has been to explore why we consider things like bug eating entomophagy. Why are we against it when humans have been eating bugs for forever and still are, um, which inherently, I guess, challenges those taboos. But you know, one of your stories, which I thought was really cool and I want to discuss more, is the history of the lobster and how it went from a garbage food served in prisons to the delicacy that it is today. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, lobster is super interesting. And, and seafood actually across the board tends to be a common one. Uh, and that tends to come from health reasons. Uh, so if you think about sushi, there's actually a pretty good practical reason why people are like, oh, don't eat raw fish. It's because sometimes you eat raw fish and you just die. Um, so people kind of realize that, yeah, it's not like safe. And, you know, there's that puffer fish that they they did a Simpsons episode about it where Homer eats the wrong puffer fish is sushi and he's, you know, got 24 hours to live. But like that's a that's a pretty common thing. Um, and actually the uh, background for the word fishy with it being used as kind of a synonym for sushi superstitious comes from the fact that in these old British towns and these British seafood markets, if something smelled like fish, it meant it was probably starting to spoil. And so people kind of across the board have always been a little bit suspect around seafood, but lobster has been all over the world. It's something that, uh, you know, they have in Japan, they have in Europe and uh, the British, the pilgrims actually may have been familiar with lobster as a food before going to the new world. Um, but they were really abundant in New England. Uh, the Algonquin Native Americans would just walk onto the beach and take whatever lobster just washed up on the shore. There would be these massive storms that would just wash hundreds of thousands of lobsters up. And so the pilgrims basically got to the new world and didn't know how to feed themselves. And so they would just have to rely on whatever they could pick up off the ground. And the Algonquins were like, oh, well, yeah, just get the lobster, just set up a fire on the beach and then you can pick them up and cook them right there. Um, but the Algonquins had other food sources. So when the pilgrims started, you know, getting into the new world and realizing that, oh, we suck at farming here, they had to rely pretty heavily on lobster. And if you can try and picture for a minute that you're starving to death and the only thing you eat is a creepy crawly bug on the beach where there are thousands of them slowly rotting and maybe picture what that might smell like. And you'd start to understand why the pilgrims and the early New Englanders started to think that lobster wasn't a high class food. Um, it basically got this reputation for being uh, a food that you only ate when you were in a in a impoverished place or if you, if you were experiencing some sort of hardship. So it became associated with poverty. And that's a pretty common thing with a lot of food taboos, but there's a there's a, a story that's possibly apocryphal, but like a source no less than David Foster Wallace mentioned it um, that uh, prisoners in early New England would complain about being fed too much lobster. Um, we're not sure if that ever happened, but we know that they were fed lobster, and so were like livestock, and that well-to-do people wouldn't have eaten it. 
So David Foster Wallace, he wrote his essay, Consider the Lobster. What else was in that essay? Like, what was he discussing? Was he also exploring how lobster went from taboo to delicacy? Yeah, so for him, it's kind of been on the tail end of this, because obviously we know now that lobster is not a taboo anymore. Um, And he was looking at this kind of new argument that's probably in the last 30, 40 years or so against the boiling of lobsters. He has this I mean, the, the article itself is incredible. It's David Foster Wallace, and he's just the bitchiest travelogue writer of all time. He hates tourism, but he goes anyway, and he just complains about everything. He did that other one on cruise ships, uh, supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. But Consider consider the Lobster was this uh, really kind of in-depth dive into the ethics of boiling something alive to eat it. And he didn't come to a clear answer because he was clearly still eating it. He was still he went to the main lobster festival in July of 2004 and basically walked around and just ate a ton of lobster and kind of felt himself being uneasy with the ethics of doing this. And while he was there, PETA was going around and handing out pamphlets to everyone who was there telling them that they were murderers and that, you know, they shouldn't be boiling lobster alive. So from the time of settling America and when English settlers were learning how to eat and how to cook and how to use lobster, how did lobster become the delicacy that it is today? Like, what happened to change people's minds? Yeah, so there, the short answer is it was the Civil War. Um, the Civil War had basically the same logistical problems that every war has. And so the North had to figure out, first of all, how do you feed all of these troops? And second of all, how do you get the supplies to them? And there were two technologies that were emerging at the time that basically solved this problem in a way that they hadn't really been done before. Uh, The first was canning. Um, So they'd figured out all these methods for basically, you know, preserving food for a lot longer than they used to be able to. And, you know, what they would pick to put in those cans would be abundant, cheap protein source, uh, protein sources. So, you know, for example, something that the locals refused to eat, but that there were a lot of. And so they would cook up all these lobster, they would throw them into cans, and then they'd ship them along the second technological invention, which was railroads. Um, and railroads allowed them to get the stuff there and back. But when the war ends... You have a few things going on. First of all, you have all these railroads that are now not being used for the war, so they need to be used for something else. Uh, And one of the things they're used for is tourism. And you've got a lot of upwardly mobile former soldiers who have eaten canned lobster for all this time. They want to go to Boston, the city of independence. Well, actually, I guess that's Philadelphia where you guys are. But they want to go to Boston and and do all the Revolutionary War stuff. And while they're there, they're like, oh, I'm going to try fresh lobster. Um, And they found that when you cooked it live, it was delicious. Uh, The locals would have found this totally disgusting, but they did the same thing that townies do to tourists all over the world. And they just laughed at them while they sold them the garbage food. Um, Basically, this put it in high demand in places outside New England. Uh, And since lobster has to be shipped live, it became more and more expensive because they stopped putting it in cans and they started to ship them in train cars uh, using very early refrigeration some of the time and sometimes just trying to keep them alive in tanks uh, to places like New York, where they became a status symbol because they were pricey. Um, There's the famous Gilded Age uh, robber baron. Diamond Jim Brady, who was said to have eaten like these giant meals that included like three or four lobsters. Um, And, you know, so it became associated with this high living. And eventually that just totally changed everything everywhere, including in, in New England, where it's become this 
pretty staple part of their diet because tourism's made it so popular that you can just find it literally anywhere you go now. Oh, absolutely. When you go to Boston or anywhere in New England, really, it's as if the lobster roll is this point of interest that all tourists should try when they're there. Like, lobster is now that dish that defines the cuisine of an entire region. So... Now we're at the point in time when lobster is embraced and it has become this status symbol. But now we have David Foster Wallace's essay and he's talking about PETA at the Lobster Festival. Like, do we see the pendulum swinging back toward lobster being a taboo again? Do you think that in the next 40 years, because I think in your article, what, it took maybe... 60 years, I forget what you had said, but uh, it took like a relatively short period of time for the perception toward lobster to change. Um, how long was it from when the lobster was taboo to when it was revered? Yeah, so it probably, I mean, there's no specific start date when it stopped being that and specific end date. Uh, but by the early 1900s, it was considered a delicacy in most places. And yeah, I mean, like there were definitely people alive who were like, you guys are eating lobster. That's disgusting. But generationally, eventually it would kind of be bred out a little bit like, you know, because that's and that's kind of the truth with with all food taboos is if a new generation decides that that taboo is silly, it's pretty hard for the old generation to really enforce it. Um, it, it basically people have to agree on it um, for for it shifting for it shifting back towards a taboo. I'm not sure how close that is to happening for the main reason that when food taboos form, it does tend to be it doesn't tend to be the moral reasons first. Um, and there are moral reasons to not eat lobster. I mean, the nervous system of a lobster is actually a bit more complex than people have traditionally given it credit for. Um, and, you know, as David Foster Wallace points out that the number one sign that you can tell that an animal is in pain outside of getting into their head, which you obviously can't do, is to look to see if they act as if they're in pain. And when you're boiling a lobster, they're like clanging at the the sides. They're trying to get out. They're clinging to things. And it can be disturbing to watch. And you would look at that and you could reasonably think that's an animal that's in pain. Uh, but it's also worth noticing, worth noting that, that lobster is the only really the only animal that we in our own kitchens are actually slaughtering. Like when we cook pork, we're not we're not killing a pig in our backyard. Most of us, we're not killing a cow uh, with lobster. We actually bring it in live and we kill it ourselves. And so it's got a bit more emotional clout when we eat it than most other meat or seafood or anything, because we're the ones that are actually doing the work of slaughtering the animal. I can see how making lobster in your own home can be quite disturbing. Like most people are eating lobster at a restaurant and they're not in the kitchen watching the creature get boiled alive. Um, it's kind of like how kids, when they grow up on a farm, they're not allowed to name the livestock because they're food, not pets. Yeah. My, my older sister at a lobster bake, like 20 years ago, named her lobster for Nobulax. And I forget why she named it that, but it's a great name, but she didn't want to kill it. And so she was like trying to save her lobster. And then the next year at the lobster bake, first of all, they didn't invite us back. And second of all, they had, if you're going to name your lobster, it's a no more than two syllable name. So you can make it like not too real, but like, you know, you know, for, for a lot of people, especially if you're interested in something like animal welfare, um, lobster is a pretty vivid, uh, way of like kind of seeing the brutality of eating all meat and fish and and you know and 
that isn't to say that we shouldn't eat it, but you know, we're so divorced from the process normally that, 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 you know, it's, it's, this is, this is kind of a reality check for a lot of people. And I think it's part of the reason that groups like PETA target uh, lobster festivals, even though most people don't think of lobsters as these like cute, cuddly animals, like, you know, uh, sheep or, or even, or even cows or pigs. Right. It's a crustacean. And if anything, it has an exoskeleton that's like a bug, which I guess leads into our next point, which is why are bugs taboo? Why can't we, why do we think that it's gross? Uh, you've explored a lot of entomophagy at Eat Sip Trip. You've written a couple of articles. One talks about how the UN believes that bug eating is the future, the food of the future. Um, and you've got another article about a wave of chefs who are turning bug eating into these fine dining experiences by pairing the insects with wine. Yeah, it's 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 a kind of a crazy trend because there's two places that it's coming from. The UN is pushing it at a very uh, poor level. And so, first of all, the bug taboo doesn't exist everywhere in the world. Um, actually, you and I, a few years ago, went to um, Taqueria Feliz in Philly, uh, and we had the Chapolines tacos, which are just, or is it grasshoppers, crickets? Um, I thought they were... It was pretty, it wasn't bad. It, like it wasn't, it was, you know, I left there kind of feeling like I had to pick legs out of my teeth, which really creeped me out. But as far as taste went, I really liked it. And if I had grown up with it, it wouldn't have been any different from picking any other sort of food out of my teeth. Oh, um, absolutely. And it was more of a texture thing. You're right. It was mildly unsettling to pick the legs out of my teeth. But ever since we did that segment on bug eating, I've been exploring it more and more. And I even went to Mexico City where pre-Hispanic cuisine is loaded with eating bugs like eating ants, eating ant larvae, chapolines, which are the grasshoppers. I even ate a scorpion at one point. Like insects in certain parts of the world are readily available and they are really nutritious and high in protein. And when you cook most insects, let's take the grasshopper, for example, many bugs that have that exoskeleton, their insides just evaporate. And all you're left with is this outer husk, this skeleton, um, which is light and crunchy and it takes on the flavor of whatever you cook it in. And yeah, it was... It wasn't like, you know, if it wasn't for having to pick the legs out of my teeth, uh, it would have had the same sensation as eating chips. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a kind of pleasant toasty taste. And the, the guy at the at the Taqueria Feliz, he he put all this hot sauce on it. And it was just I thought I thought it was actually pretty tasty. Um Granted, I was more into the salsa than I was into like the actual cricket. But, you know, I mean, but but basically, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is it's, it's there are good bugs and they can be prepared very well. And part of the reason that the U.N. is pushing it is because they're extremely high in protein. They're uh, literally everywhere. They're um, very easy to raise for human consumption. It's super cheap to do it. It's super low tech and it doesn't take up any amount of space in comparison to something like farming cattle. Um, so it has these really low impacts on the environment than pretty much all other protein sources that we use. And it's just, it's there. And so, uh, they say, I think the UN says 2 billion people in the world currently, uh, eat bugs and, uh, Oaxaca in, in Mexico is one of the main cultures that really, really embraces it. But there are other ones in Africa and Asia that regularly eat different types of, of insects. Um, so in the West, for, for whatever reason, we've decided that 
it, it doesn't belong on our plates. And I think that that comes from a few things. I think it's similar to the lobster where it's a status thing and it's seen as kind of a, a, a poor person's meal. And so we see it if you're eating bugs, you're probably doing it out of some form of desperation. Um, but there's also, I think, in Western culture, a little bit of an association of bugs with things like disease and filth. And so we've got these like really hermetically sealed lives where you know, we've got air conditioning on all the time. And, you know, we had we had cockroaches in our apartment last year and it was horrifying. It was the worst thing. And, you know, looking back on it, that might have been an overreaction to seeing like 10 cockroaches over the course of two months. Oh, like, geez. You know. I thought you were going to say you saw 10 at once, because if that was the case, you'd have to burn the whole building down. No, yeah. I mean, but like we we almost did. Like we were putting poison everywhere. We were like spraying everything. Like we were putting every time we would wash something in the dishwasher, we would do like vinegar in there to make sure that they couldn't, you know, they would die if they were in there with it. And like but we did all of these like these ways of basically nuking them out of our home. Um and granted they are disgusting, but you know, we react to bugs around us uh, probably a little bit more intensely than people in a lot of the rest of the world do. Yeah, that's true. People can barely handle if there's a spider in the room or like, oh, no, there's a trail of ants in the foyer. Better get the ant traps. Like people get disgusted when they see a bug. Like I know for myself, though, um, cockroaches. That's where I draw the line. But I have become more accustomed to seeing cockroaches ever since moving to Philadelphia because I feel like, you know, I could just go for a walk and one will cross by, like walk past me on the sidewalk and it'll like waltz right into a restaurant. <laughs> but the thing that I don't like about cockroaches is the way they move. They have this weird flutteriness to their butts when they walk. They scuttle. Yeah, yeah they scuttle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I do not like the scuttling. No, like I, I think that there, there's, you know, and that's that gets to really the root of a lot of the food stuff is there is a sense of disgust that goes underneath all of it. And and, you know, with with taboos, disgust is normally at the core. And we like to think that disgust is this very instinctive feeling and it isn't necessarily. So take, for example, if you were to go to India and uh, you were eating with your hands, there's a taboo there against uh, eating with your left hand. The reason being that, you know, toilet paper is not used in India. You wipe with your hands and you're supposed to wipe with your left hand. So someone in India could uh, see you eating with your left hand. If you're like me, I went there and I was like looking at this plate and trying to eat with my right hand and realizing it was just all shaky. And I, cause I'm a lefty, I couldn't figure out how to do it. And so I asked my host, like, can I please eat with my left hand? And they're like, yeah, my, our grandmother cares about that. We don't. So it's, you know, that's, that's also a generational thing too, but you could conceivably see someone eating with their left hand if you were there and be disgusted by it. Um, but that disgust isn't necessarily intrinsic to the action. It's just something that we associate with something else that's disgusting, which is, you know, fecal matter. And so, you know, with bugs, we associate them with the fact that we see them on spoiling fruit or we see them uh, kind of getting into our food or, you know, that there's the joke. The only thing worse than finding a worm in your apple is finding half a worm in your apple. Like, you know, you just you kind of shudder when you think about that possibility. And, and yeah. worms are associated with dirt. They're in the ground. And I I guess for a cockroach, like if you saw a cockroach in someone's house, you immediately assume they're a dirty person when in reality it could be a variety of other factors. There's probably so many critters inside the wall right now that we don't even know about, but because they're out of sight and out of mind, there's this like 
piece. And we don't you know? and we don't apply the same standards for every animal, too, because, you know, that's part of the reason that, you know, in Islam, um, pigs aren't eaten is because they're seen to be seen to be dirty animals. Uh, because they kind of like roll around in the mud and often in their own poop. And so, but we here in the West, we put bacon on everything. We put it inside everything. Like we, you know, we've, we've got, I've, there's like bacon vodka. Like you, you can, you can put bacon on literally anything here. But we wrap things in bacon. Yeah, it's, we're obsessed with it. But basically by the same standards that we judge cockroaches, we should also judge pigs. If we were being purely rational about the way we're doing this. But we're obviously not rational creatures. And we even wrap seafood in bacon, which if you were kosher, that would be so many degrees of blasphemy. Yeah, but, but I mean, that's the bacon wrapped scallops is just like the best form of blasphemy ever. It's so good. Ugh. I love it when they have those at weddings. Bacon wrapped scallops is the hors de vor de jour. Like, if bacon wrapped scallops come out at the party, I know we're about to throw down because someone invested in the luxury party snack. So these are examples of foods that we associate with being dirty. And you had brought up to me earlier today this interesting article about what happens when the food is seen as not dirty, but as holy. What's the story behind Hindus and the cow? Yeah, that's a really interesting one because it's become kind of a kind of a, a point of tension in India right now. Uh, but if you go way, 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 way back in history, uh, early Hindus did not have a prohibition against eating cows. Um, there's a there's a line in the Mahabharata which seems to suggest that there was some major famine and one of the gods went and saved the world and the world turned into a cow and the cow begged for its life and said, I will feed humans with my milk, but not with my flesh. And so like the, the you know, that's kind of a cool poetic story, but basically Basically, what it suggests is that if there was a famine, uh, people would have gone and killed their cows. And that would have been a short term solution to a possible long term problem. And, you know, cows and chickens and all sorts of animals like that, they provide you with more food, more calories over a long period of time if you keep them alive than if you kill them. You know, you get the milk or you get the eggs or you get whatever. So in India, it basically got to a point where the Brahmins, which are the highest caste, were starting to hold cows as status symbols, as a sign of wealth. The fact that you didn't have to kill your cow, the fact that you could hold it for milk uh, showed that you you were wealthy. And so if you were to kill a cow, you were basically destroying your wealth. Uh, and since, uh, you know, lower classes tend to imitate higher classes, over time it became a um, religion-wide uh, prohibition against eating cows. And so today it's taken this weird turn where in the 19th century it became something that distinguished Hindus from Muslims. And so uh, there, there occasionally someone will try and push a law that prohibits prohibits the uh, the eating of or the slaughtering of cows, period. And India is a very, very diverse country. It has a lot of Muslims, and that would be a pretty tricky law to pass. So these Hindu nationalists kind of use it as this kind of um, focal point of, of, you know, their their political messaging. So something that started off with pretty practical reasons is now being 
used in all of these other ways, uh, all these other like political and cultural ways to try and like push certain agendas. So cows are cows and cows are interesting. And they're and, and now there's you're getting people in India who are also saying that cows uh, eating cows is actually bad for the environment, which is objectively true. Uh, we know that cows, um, the cow farts are uh, worse for the atmosphere than, you know, uh, a similar amount of carbon um, because they have a lot of methane in them. Um, and they also tend to destroy a lot of land when they're grazing. And so there's, you know, that's part of the vegan movement is saying that, uh, you know, that, that cows are, are, you know, eating, eating cows or eating any sort of livestock is actually bad for the environment. So we have these originally probably economic or ecological reasons why we chose to not eat something. And then we start to transpose moral or, um, or, or philosophical or religious reasons for not doing it too. Um, What's interesting is that we might actually be hitting this point with something like bugs where we do start to get ecological and practical reasons to be eating more of them. And the the article that you referenced, the one about the the cooks that do wine pairings with bugs, they uh, there's this entire group of people in the United States. It's not huge, but it's growing who are trying to get people into eating insects. So they'll do basically one of the tactics. I talked to a, um, a um, entomophagist named, uh, uh, I think it's Justin Butner. And he was talking about how they're not above getting people drunk um, because people get a lot more adventurous when they're drunk. And they also know that if you bring kids in, kids will just scarf bugs like they're they're really into it because they don't have the same kind of ingrained disgust that we have around it. Um, they're doing work that needs to be done if you're ever going to break a bug taboo. But the real thing that needs to be done is we need to have massive shifts in terms of what we can and can't eat. Like meat needs to become more expensive and more scarce. And um, we need to be, you know, we need to have sustainability become a bigger priority in our society, which it looks like is going to have to happen. So all of these forces that are kind of like starting to coalesce, uh, will probably result in us eating more bugs, uh, and that's and that's the interesting thing about taboos across the board is that they're 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 these quirks that have arisen in our society, and there's no society that exists without them. But you know they they don't always make a ton of sense. They might have initially, but they often don't have the um, moral or gut component that we attribute to them that, that we think they do. If you're interested in seeing more of Matt Hirschberger's work, go check out Better Strangers on Substack. You can also follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Matt Hirschberger, and you can follow him on TikTok at Better Strangers Books. I'm not sure what the future of this here podcast is, but Amuse-Bouche continues to be a monthly newsletter on Substack that examines life through the lens of food. These days, I'm back hosting WHYY's Check, Please, Philly, where every week we explore the Philadelphia region's dining scene through viewer recommendations. You can catch the show Thursdays at 7.30 p.m., and you can follow the show at Check, Please, Philly on Instagram and TikTok. This podcast has always been a one-woman band, produced, hosted, edited, and researched by yours truly, Kehlani Palmasano. If you like what you're hearing, please go support my personal work. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Kehlani Says. The music at the beginning and the end of this podcast is by the Great North Sound Society, and the song is called South Street Strut. A little nod to my Philly folks out there. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you elsewhere on the internet.